Hi everyone, it's Avi here. It's been a couple weeks since I've been on with you guys, so I'm really excited for this week's episode. I hope you're all doing well and staying safe. I know we've had a pretty crazy first month of 2021, hoping that things get better. I'm so excited for today's episode. I am going to be speaking with Dr. Amani Jambakar, who is a breast surgical oncologist, and she completed her MBA while she was doing her fellowship a few years back. And so on today's episode, I really wanted to talk to her about what it's like to get an MBA after getting an MD, what are the benefits of having an MBA once you're in the medical field, and we also talk about other things that are really important when it comes to contracts and negotiations. We also talk about being a female physician in the surgical field, the struggles that she went through, and just talking about how you can advocate for future physicians who are interested in the surgical field. Dr. Jampakar is an amazing advocate, not just for women, but for persons of color, for pre-med and med students. So we really touch on a lot of different topics during this episode. We also talk about vaccine hesitancy amongst people of color and how we can address this in order to increase COVID-19 vaccination efforts in the U.S. So without further ado, here's this week's podcast episode. I hope you all enjoy. Hey everyone, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Amani Jambakar on the show today. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off this week's episode with just a couple of fun segments that we like to do on the show. The first segment is called highs and lows. So basically, we each share our high for the past week and our low for the past week. Would you like to start? Sure. I would say a high for the past week is I'm trying to encourage pre-meds and med students right now to help their elderly grandparents and also people who don't necessarily have access to technology sign up for the COVID vaccine. And people have been really enthusiastic about it. Like every pre-med and med student has been like, yes, this is something I can definitely get involved in and want to help do. So I think it was exciting to see how enthusiastic they are and how they all kind of immediately jumped on board. Absolutely. I think that's a great high. I'm really happy to hear that people have been so enthusiastic about it. So that's fantastic. So for me, I would say my high has been more so related to my personal career and education. So as you and I have discussed, I'm doing a master's in public health. And so this past week was pretty tough for me, I have to say. I had two classes that I took that generally should have taken three months which I took in one week. (laughs) Wow. And so it was, it was definitely exhausting, definitely overwhelming, but I'm happy that I got through them and I completed majority of the work that has to be done. I still have a little bit left, but I have to say it's been more of a personal high for me. So I was very excited about that. That's awesome. What class are they? So I'm taking one class in investigation in outbreaks, and mm-hmm. uh, which is very pertinent to what we're going through right now. And yeah. then the second class I'm taking is actually a news media course. So basically oh, cool. just learning how to interview the right way and right. how to spread accurate information in a way that gets more people to listen. Because science is science, right? Like we know the hard facts, but it's a matter of actually having people understand and listen to you. So how do you phrase things in a way that get more people to hear you? So I think it's pretty cool and both very pertinent. So I've been really excited. 
both extremely relevant. And I can see some of that work coming across and the stuff you've been sharing, which has been so enlightening and so great to be able to share with people. And it's great that you've been using those courses to break things down and educate and combat misinformation. So congrats. Thanks so much. I could say the same about you. You inspire me and we'll get into all of that soon here. But yeah, let's talk about our lows too. I'm curious, you know, over the past week, anything for you that's really stood out in terms of that? So I just posted a reel on Instagram that kind of talks about how I was bullied as a resident and made it through. And I was really sad to see that there was a resident who responded, who commented on that and said, I really needed to see this today. I almost resigned last night. Like that literally broke my heart. Um, Because, you know, you it's been a couple of years now since I've been a resident and you really want to believe that things are changing. And that really just reminded me that things aren't changing fast enough. Yeah. And that's definitely something I think that you do an amazing job of supporting and advocating for med students. I mean, I will say that some things have changed a little bit, but really there's a lot more work that has to be done to change the culture in medicine. And I mean, definitely applies to the surgical field, but in general, you know, thinking about residency and what residents go through. For me, I would say the low has been, I've been trying to find an appointment slot for my 67 year old mother-in-law. And it's been such a struggle. And you think being a healthcare professional, maybe you'd have some kind of idea of getting someone in, but navigating the system the way it is right now has been very frustrating. It's very disorganized. Yeah. And so, so she's here in Georgia. But it's been very frustrating. Georgia, sadly, is actually doing, compared to some of the other states, Georgia's doing okay. But it's like that here in Texas, too. It's a a refresh game, really. And it's good that you're you're advocating for her, though, and that you're, like, using your tech skills to try to help her as much as you can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just that refresh game, kind of like you said, one second you refresh and there's an appointment. Literally, there was an appointment slot. We're typing in the information and all appointments are gone. So on one end, it's like, that's great that people are actually trying to get the shot, but then it's yeah. frustrating for, you know, in my situation, I'm like, well, I want that, I want that appointment for her, but I'm sure she'll get it soon. It's just navigating that. I'm hoping no, that it'll is, get better. I, I think all they're going to have to send for it at some point, but yeah, I'm, I have the same issues. I'm trying to get my aunts and uncles signed up in Florida and it is just a disaster. It's exactly like you're describing it. Hoping things get better, but you know, we'll, we'll learn more soon, right? So um, we're recording this podcast two days before President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris take office. So more to come on that. So in the second segment, I just wanted to ask you if you'd like to share any fun or any favorite product that you're currently using or that you would recommend. Sure. So a couple of things. I've been using Butta, B-U-T-T-A-H, skin products. Honestly, it's because I, you know, I was trying to find some black owned brands to support because I realized that like kind of what's out there and what targets us on Instagram and Facebook are typically companies that are huge and maybe don't need the business as much. And um, I really wanted to look for products that were better for like my skin tone and for my hair and but a skin, it really and I'm not an ambassador for them in any way. I, you know, I'm, I literally am just a fan. And yeah, they, um, I was having like this really terrible maskne, which I know a lot of us were. And a lot of the other like hacks people were sharing to kind of take care of that wasn't really working on my skin because I have a little bit darker skin and I 
I'm a little bit more prone to like hyperpigmentation after getting acne. And that really was a game changer for me. Like it really, it's like a vitamin C serum and it's like a this cream that you wear at night and it's a face wash. And that really helped. It really cleared things up. So if there's any other kind of darker skin ladies, whatever your skin tone is, I definitely recommend it. It's a game changer for me. That's fantastic. I'm going to have to check them out. I recently, so I've been trying to try products from smaller businesses as well. So I've actually recently, I talked about it in my stories, Haldi Skin is one that I've been utilizing. Yeah, so I saw that. Yeah. So they kind of tailor products to what you're looking for. And I like the way they do things. They're not like forcing you to switch your entire skincare routine to their products. They kind of tailor to what you're looking for. So I told them, look, like I like what I'm currently using, but I have these problems that I want to address. And so they add their products to what you're currently using in like a supplemental way. So for example, like I have pigmentation issues or mask me as well. So I mean, it's something that I'm working on, my skin was feeling and looking really dull. So that was another thing I wanted to work on. So and I'm also not an ambassador for healthy skin, I don't get paid or anything. But truly, like it's a small business, and they really customize their products to the individual, which I really, really liked that. Yeah. And I'll link the both of the skincare lines in our podcast episode. And I'm definitely going to check out butter. That's awesome. I love to try new things. And I'm with you. We got to really promote more small businesses. So this is great. So I kind of want to get into what I call like the meat of the pod. Basically, I wanted to first start off by asking you if you could share a little bit about yourself, just give a little introduction of what you do and what led you to do what you're doing today. Sure. So um, I'm a school oncologist. Um, For those of you who don't know, That's a surgeon who primarily operates on cancer. I did my fellowship in breast surgical oncology at Columbia, and I did all of my surgical training in New York. And then after that, I did my MBA at IU Kelly School of Business. So now I'm in a large multi-specialty private practice, but I'm actually kind of building a breast cancer program for my community from the ground up, which is not typically a position you see yourself in um, so soon out of training. But, you know, I was hired for it because of, but at that point, my MBA was already in progress. So it's been kind of a, a rough ride, but, you know, I'm happy that things are now going a little bit more smoothly and that, you know, we're really able to to provide excellent cancer care to the women of this community. That's fantastic. I mean, that sounds like an amazing opportunity. I'm sure it's stressful to kind of start from the ground up, but you're also getting to build it probably the way you want it to be. Right. Right. So I think that's fantastic. And so, you know, you mentioned that you were already in the process of getting your MBA degree. What made you decide to pursue an MBA degree after you finished med school? So I decided at the end of my general surgery residency that I wanted to pursue an MBA. You know, I saw a lot of disparity in my residency and I really got to see a lot of different examples of leadership and not all of them were good examples of leadership. And especially in surgery, you know, they kind of expect you to be in this very hierarchical system, but no one ever teaches you how to be a good job and to be a good leader. And then you do hear a lot of stories about surgeons who are in the OR and things aren't going well 
and they're just screaming and throwing things and they don't know how to behave like professionals. That to me is not true leadership. And I wanted to learn that. And so I wanted to learn how to manage a team. I wanted to learn how to be a leader. I wanted to understand how to market myself and, you know, everything that I'm doing. And I thought an MBA would help me. You know, I had mentors in residency who were really, really supportive of that. And they said, go ahead, you should apply. I was lucky to get in. And then I started my MBA when, as I started my fellowship. So I did both at the same time. And then I finished my MBA in about a year and three quarters. And so after finishing my fellowship in a few more months after that, I finished my MBA. How did you navigate pursuing your MBA degree and studying and taking classes while also doing your fellowship? So it wasn't easy because I would say the MBA definitely adds more time. And like as a fellow, it's a little bit better than as a general surgery resident, but you're still like on call all the time. In my program, I was the only fellow. So like all the problems were my problems. And I was always the one that was like there the earliest in the morning and leaving the latest at night, which is, you know, pretty typical of fellowship. I tried to integrate the two as much as I could. So if I had like papers due, you know, I would try to write about topics that were relevant to cancer care, case study that kind of stuff. You know, there were definitely days when I had like group projects and I'd be like checking on them in between OR cases. I just tried to be as efficient as I could to really manage the two. But I knew that if I started on it while I was still a fellow, it would probably give me a leg up in the job hunt and help me find the kind of position that I wanted. So I didn't want to wait until, you know, after I already finished fellowship. That's a really good point. And I'll probably ask you another question about that in a little bit. But in the meantime, what career opportunities might be available to a physician with an MBA degree? I mean, it sounds like you were more interested in a leadership aspect. Was there anything specific in terms of opportunities out there that you would say, okay, this is a place where you should have an MBA degree in addition to your MD degree? I think that, you know, any type of, if you want to be in a leadership position, whether it's, you know, you're the head of your division, you're the department chair, you're in hospital administration, I think that it's useful for any of those particular roles. But in general, I do recommend like business classes, like just the very basics, you know, like accounting and finance. I think every single doctor should take those because, you know, if you're, even if you're in private practice and you are not planning to advance at all and you don't want to be the head of anything, like you really need to be able to understand those basics in order to do a good job running your practice. And you see more and more physicians are coming out of private practice and their practices are being bought by large groups. Some of that is because physicians don't know how to manage those themselves and they don't realize where they're losing money. Those are great points. Do you think that incorporating these financial and accounting classes into medical school would be a suggestion that you would make? Oh, yeah. I mean, if I could, I would say every single I would make a curriculum for every medical school that's like a business in medicine series. And it would it would have kind of the basics of accounting, finance, like running a practice, it would have a little bit of personal finance in there, like paying off your loans and starting to save for retirement once you are in attending. And it would also have some in there about like marketing and negotiation. So that way you can really understand how you want to present yourself to the world as an attending. And all of this stuff, they don't teach us any of it. You know, they don't even go over our CVs and tell us like, hey, this is good, or this is crap, or, you know, they don't give us any feedback. And we just have to like go out there into the real world and figure out these skills that people who have been in, you know, the professional industry since they were in college, they've already figured all that out. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's almost shocking the gaps in our education in medical school. I mean, this yes. is just one aspect. You know, we can dive into so many areas in medical school oh, yeah. that really need to be worked on. This is definitely one of them. So, what are the requirements to apply for an MBA degree? Did you feel like there was anything that you'd done during medical school that helped meet any prereqs, or did you have to do other stuff to kind of get to that point? So, for most MBA programs, if you already have another terminal degree, so for me, I'd already completed my MD, you don't need to take any of the admissions tests. And then it was really pretty much writing a bunch of essays and getting my transcripts from, you know, even all the way back to college. So I think business school is one of those things where the main prereq is that you need to have some work experience. And for me, since I'd already finished five years of general surgery, by the time I was applying, that made me a pretty good candidate. I think if you're applying in medical school, it might be a little more challenging to get in unless you're already in an MD MBA program, which I think those are fantastic as well. Yeah, I think those combination programs are great. But you're right. I think that if you're going from med school, it might be more difficult. And I think maybe then you take like a GMAT. I'm not 100% sure the whole trajectory, but it's good to know. So with work experience, you know, and you have that previous degree, they're kind of overlooking or not requiring a standardized test essentially. So that's great. I know you mentioned that you, you know, you decided and you started your MBA in fellowship. At what point during your training, though, do you actually recommend getting the MBA? Do you recommend because of the work experience requirement that residents should be looking into doing it? Or do you recommend trying to do it before residency? Is there a specific point in time that you would advise people who are interested in pursuing an MBA to do that? I think that if you're not doing a dual degree program, I think that residency or fellowship or even beyond as you know, you're an attending any of those are appropriate times to do it. I think in medical school, it's hard because like the first couple of years or first year and a half, you know, you're really trying to figure out how you learn, which hasn't really been tested in college, because most kids who go on to medical school kind of fly through college, and they don't have to figure out like, this is how I learn a lot more information. And then as you know, you're on your clinical rotations, as a medical student, you're so worried about your role on the team and like knowing what you can do and can't do like I think that would be really stressful to then have to figure out a whole new dynamic on top of that I would say like once you've already gotten like a year under your belt and you've kind of figured out at least this is how things work in the hospital I think after that it would be a good time to pursue it and you would actually learn a lot you know had I done it as a resident I think I would have been a far 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 better team player than I was yeah yeah that makes sense definitely so on Instagram, you started MBA Mondays, um, or what you call MBA Mondays. And I think it's a great series that you have going. And in that series, you've talked about contracts and what to do or what to look for in a job search. Do you have any key pointers or tips that you could share with our listeners? Yeah. So I would say, I would say the biggest thing that I learned, not only through my own experience, but through my MBA is that looking for a job, a real job, an attending job is very different from looking for a fellowship position or a residency position because those are through the match. So like there may be people who get five job offers and there may be people who went to 20 interviews and get none. And it's not this, it's not a system that's necessarily equitable. So I would say uh, my biggest tip is to not compare yourself to other people. I know that 
that you it's easy to do it when you're a resident because you're all in the same stage and you're like, I ranked at my, I matched at my number one. Did you match at your number one? You know, that kind of thing. But as an attending, it's so different how each place will pick someone. And I think a lot of the reason why people pick someone to be faculty or in an attending position is based on who they think is going to stay and who has roots there. And that's, you know, the value of that is honestly outweighs a lot of other qualities you may have. So I would say that's my biggest tip is just remember that it's your journey. It's no one else's journey. And it's a little like online dating. You might get ghosted. You just have to kind of have a thick skin and be ready for it. Right. Yeah. That's a great comparison. So when it comes to the job search, what are your recommendations on how to start going about doing that? So I would say that everyone who's in med school now should create a LinkedIn profile just so that way you can kind of get an idea of how to put yourself out there and how to market yourself even starting now. You'll get really great examples of physicians that are doing a great job with it. You'll also get examples of physicians that maybe aren't doing a great job with it. And you'll learn a lot just from kind of passively observing that over the next few years. I would say that LinkedIn, Indeed, Glassdoor, Google Search, and Doximity are all really great starting points, as well as your own specialty society job boards. So, you know, for me, the Society of Surgical Oncology job board was one I checked all the time. I would also recommend that, you know, you start networking and keep in touch with people that you're in med school with now, keep in touch with people that you go through residency with, because you never know when those connections are going to help you later on. So I would say for people in this stage in their careers, the two things they can really do are get on LinkedIn and start networking, meeting other people people in their class, especially people that are going into the same specialty that they are. That's all great advice. In terms of, I know you said get on it now, but in terms of active job search, when do you think that residents should start actively looking for a job? I would say you should start looking a full year before you expect to graduate. So if you're in surgery, if you're at the end of your PGY-4, that's a good time to start looking because you're going to finish as a PGY-5. I don't really think there's ever really too early to look because I would say that a lot of, especially competitive academic programs are looking to hire a year out. I would say the smallest time window that's okay is probably nine months out because it really does take time to make contact with the recruiters to then kind of dialogue back and forth with them to arrange for the interview, you know, whether or not the interview is via Zoom, or if it's in person, like it takes a really long time to coordinate all of the schedules of everyone that you're going to need to meet. And that whole process itself can take, you know, six weeks between the time that a recruiter first contacts you and the time that you actually get to the interview. So I think starting earlier is better. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I think it's a long process. It takes time. Yeah. So definitely agree with that timeline. And I would assume with fellowship too, you would probably kind of the similar advice where you do nine months or a year before essentially start in terms of the job search, right? Right. Like if you're in a one-year fellowship, then start basically as soon as you start your fellowship, start looking for right. a job. Right. Absolutely. So are there certain red flags one should be aware of when looking for a job? I would say so. Yeah. So I think that anytime a job posting says something like looking for ambitious physician, you know, a word like that, if a recruiter says looking for self starter, something like that, you know, that means that, you know, they're going to have you driving all over 100 miles covering like four hospitals on call, or it basically implies that there's nothing in place right now, and that you're going to start everything. And there may not even be a good referral network for you to get patients. And so I would say that if it says looking for energetic or ambitious or self-starter, any of those kind of buzzwords that 
they're trying to use to get to the younger demographic, that means that you're really going to be hustling for the first couple of years to build your patient base. That's a great point. What are definite questions that an applicant should be asking during the job interview? I think that they should all be asking, you know, where are the patients coming from? What kind of relationships does that hospital or that practice have with other specialty providers? I would ask who else has been in that job and what the volume was of patients that they took care of. And I would kind of hold them down to that. You know, I wouldn't let them be like, oh, yeah, you know, she was real busy. You know, the lady who was here before you, she was really busy or the guy was here before you like I would ask for specific figures because you know for you you need to know if you're going to be able to get enough patients to you know make this work for you and so I would want kind of specifics and before going into the interview you know based on your specialty I would have an idea in my head of like this is how many you know patients that I need to be seeing in order to really be you know my break-even point or at the point where I could be profitable after paying for all this overhead and it's different you know based on what you do you know if you're in primary care or if you're in a subspecialty, if you're in a subspecialty, you're going to be relying on other providers such as primary care to send patients to you. So you really need a very good network in place. You need to have an idea of like some numbers in your head, like this is the target that I need. So if they're below that, then I'm going to be working much harder to try to get those, those patients and I may never get busy. Yeah, I think those are all great questions. I also like to say like, or ask about turnover rate amongst providers, right? Yeah. In the last five years, how many physicians have gone through this job? I mean, it sounds like a strange thing maybe to ask, but it really isn't because it really can tell you a lot about the environment that you might be working in. Why are these physicians leaving? Why are they not staying? And one thing I've come across when I talk to medical students, and I, I wanted to gauge your thoughts on this is, this fear of what if I ask a question, they just don't like the question, and then I don't get the job as a result of it. To me, it's like, that means that that was a big red flag that they weren't even willing to answer the question. So you shouldn't fear not getting a job because you're asking the right questions, you should always ask the right questions. I think that part of that really goes back to like, no one teaches us in our training. and, And they really should be teaching us when we're out looking for those jobs and are about to start looking for the jobs here is how to advocate for yourself. Here's how to market yourself. And here is how to make sure that you end up in a position that will be able to support you and your family. I think that I agree with you. You know, if they ask a question and that job is whoever they're speaking to won't answer it, they're very squirrely, they stop contacting you, whatever, like that's a red flag. You don't want to be in a place where they're not going to be 100% transparent with you. And, you know, I've definitely seen that. And there have been a lot of physicians that I've coached through their own job seeking processes. And I've seen a lot of problems with transparency and where a job just kind of ghosts someone because they asked a question. And then it turned out that, you know, that place got bought by a different healthcare system entirely and they're getting rid of the whole department. So it was actually really great that this person opened their mouth and asked a question and didn't end up there, you know? Right. All great points. So I wanted to talk about the contract a little bit. I know every contract is different, but do you have an idea or can you provide us some information about just generally speaking, what What are the different parts of a physician contract? Yeah, so I would say most of the time you'll start with like a letter of intent and it will say some basic things like it'll say what your base salary is. 
It'll say like how much paid time off you get. It may say like what your bonus structure is. And then kind of the more details will be in like a more detailed contract. Those will be like line items, like specifically what your responsibilities are, what you could be fired for if there's a non-compete, et cetera, et cetera. I would say most of the time you get that letter of intent before you get that formal contract because it takes a long time to generate the formal contract. And those first few things are the ones that you end up negotiating. Usually it's paid time off, CME money, base salary, and bonus structure. And that I would say that um, that's your window because when it gets when it finally gets into that 10 page contract, by that point, you know, it's much more difficult to change things. So I would say those are that's kind of the basics of a letter of intent, I would say. And usually it'll say something about your start date as well. Yeah, that all makes sense. And I I think that's great information for our listeners who, you know, like you said, we don't know what's in a contract. We never learn about it in medical school. So it's great information. You mentioned negotiating. So oftentimes I hear residents, you know, looking at their contract being like, this is great. You know, like, should I even be questioning or asking for more? And if so, any strategies? So would you be able to share any negotiation skills or strategies to our listeners? Yes. So I'm definitely planning to go a lot more into like the letter of intent and show like examples of contracts and negotiation and all that on my MBA Monday series, because there's just so much to cover. But I would say the first thing is to get a lawyer to look over your contract, not just like you're attending who hasn't been in the job market themselves for, you know, 10 or 15 years, not just like your friend who's like, oh, yeah, this looks good, too. But someone who is a lawyer who has experience looking over physicians, contracts. And yes, it could cost you $500, but it's worth it because you want to make sure that, you know, there's not a liability problem down the line, because if there is, that's going to cost you a lot more money. I would say the other thing is that before you even go into contract negotiations, you need to assess what your interests are. So like, what is it that motivates you about this job? And what is it that you see for yourself? What do you want out of this job? And then kind of have some ideas in your head as to the bargaining mix or the actual line items in the contract. So like, what would you ideally want in an ideal world? You should have those ideas in your head before you start the contract negotiation process. So that way you kind of know, you know, when they come back, like, okay, well, I have a little more wiggle room or, you know, this is actually very fair. And I would say that most specialties have data on what physicians get paid, you know, in the 50th percentile, 75th percentile, 25th percentile, based on where, what geographic location they're in. And I think it's important to, use that data as well when you're thinking about like what your ideal what your ideal numbers are you know you're not going to ask for something that no one makes in your specialty you know you're not going to say oh I would like a million dollars a year immediately out of out of training you know no one's going to get that but if you do some research and kind of have some ideas then I think that you'll know whether or not the contract it's a good offer or it's not a good offer and in some cases it may be a very fair offer you know and in some cases it might be like whoa you know this is this is not fair based on what other people are getting paid in this area. Yeah, definitely. All that's all great advice. So I want to change gears a bit. And I wanted to ask a little bit more about your career as a surgeon. How has it been navigating the surgical field as a female physician? It's been challenging. It's 
so in my cl- graduating class, I was the only female resident and female residents in surgery have a higher attrition rate because it's really still a boys club. And I experienced that throughout my training as well, where, you know, most of the attendings were male and most of the attendings were, you know, there were there were things that they would say and there was kind of jokes that they would make that would really only include the male residents. And I constantly felt left out of that. I would say there was a high degree of bullying as well in my in my surgery program, which luckily, you know, as we kind of as I progressed through training, you know, we started to make sort of changes to get rid of people who behave that way and to stop that behavior before it really even started. And so I'm happy to say that by the time I graduated, my program was a very different place than when I started, but it was a difficult road. Yeah, I mean, I hear this so often, especially in the surgical field. As family medicine, we rotate through surgery. And I mean, I was only there for two months. So I mean, for you to have to have gone through it for five years, I'm really happy to hear that by the end of your training, things were better. But it is definitely something that just the culture in medicine needs to change. And I think surgery is definitely one of the fields where things need to definitely improve. Now, do you have any tips for females interested in pursuing Pursuing a career in surgery? So I think that there's a people will tell you, you know, only the strong survive. I'm sorry, but I just think that's so much BS. You shouldn't have to go through bullying and sexual harassment and other things to prove that you're quote unquote strong. So I think that, you know, if you want to be a surgeon, be a surgeon. But the biggest piece of advice I have is to really build up the other women around you and to form a community. And if you aren't in a place where you can do that, or you're the only female resident, then come find me, reach out to me and I'll be your community because I think I wasn't in an environment like that as a surgical resident and I really didn't foster an environment like that. You know, all the women were very competitive with each other and part of it was because the male residents would say, "Well, are you going to be like so and so? She always cries." And like we fell into that trap and kind of bullied each other instead of like standing up together against them and being like, "Hey, we are strong. We're much stronger than you're giving us credit for, so just back off." So I think that if you need support, come find me or any other female surgeon who knows what it's like and find that support amongst your peers as well, because the only way that we're going to change this culture if we is if we do it together. Absolutely agree. 100%. You've really been a great advocate, not just for women, but you know, medical students in general, how can surgeons like yourself and others in the medical field like myself support the future generations of physicians? I think that part of it is advocating for pre-meds and med students and residents. I think we all remember what it's like to not have a voice and to be in a situation where either something wrong is happening to you, you're being harassed in some way, or it's happening to someone else and you feel like you can't speak up. I think that we can all be advocates and encourage the culture of medicine to be far more professional because that isn't tolerated in other industries besides ours. And I think we can also all have kind of an open door policy. So if students who maybe don't know us, but have just found us on social media are going through this and don't know how to navigate it, they have us to turn to and we can kind of guide them on what to do next. I think that if we all have that same advocacy and that same attitude towards the next generation, then you know, we will help change the culture because we'll help guide them on how to fix things for themselves. Yeah, I think that's, that's great. And it's really important. 
So you're also an amazing advocate for people of color and you've used your Instagram platform in such amazing ways in order to do this. And you've spearheaded many great campaigns. Can you talk about your most recent campaign, hashtag our science, our future? Yeah, so Our Science, Our Future is something that Stacey Dillon and I came up with. And we just really want to promote more conversations about the vaccine that are inclusive. You know, I really appreciate that there are a lot of healthcare workers who are posting selfies and posting, you know, this is our shot. But I do think that sometimes those give the message that, you know, we're happy that we're first and don't necessarily make the conversation broader to include those that maybe aren't sure if they want to get the vaccine or not. I think that people who aren't sure are very different from anti-vaxxers. People who aren't sure may be members of the black and brown communities who have had many reasons to mistrust the government and who have been experimented on. So treatments can be developed to help white people for like 400 years. And so I think that this hashtag is just kind of representative of a conversation to really include those communities because this is everyone's shot to end the pandemic. And we need everyone's buy-in in order to make that happen, not just, you know, healthcare workers. And that's all it is. It's just trying to encourage people to really make the conversation more inclusive and advocate for people who are higher risk of death from COVID, which are Black and Brown Americans, to get the vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. How do you think that we in the medical field can address the hesitancies that persons of color have about the COVID vaccine? I think that having conversations with Black and Brown doctors, like Black and Latinx doctors who are in that field and trying to understand where that comes from is a huge first step. I also think that we can be advocates on social media. I don't think the United States vaccine rollout is going to change such that they actually say that people who are at higher risk, Black and Brown Americans, should go before the vast majority of white people, unfortunately. But we can advocate for them. And I also think that that like major medical societies, and we if we're members of those, we can encourage them to join the conversation, they can advocate for black and brown Americans, you saw with pregnant and breastfeeding women, you know, there was just like a hint that they may be left out and everybody's advocating for them. All the major medical societies are saying we stand with pregnant women. Well, why aren't they all saying we stand with black people, we stand with Latinx people, like who's saying that and I think that if more healthcare providers who are on social media can call them out and can say, hey, we need this advocacy. I think we have a chance of reaching a group that feels like no one's advocating for them. That's a great point. And, you know, organizations like ACOG came out and said that, hey, we support vaccines in in pregnancy. So I think you're right. It's definitely important. So, you know, we have a voice, we have a platform on social media, and it's definitely something that we need to utilize. And you're right. Honestly, I'm not really sure with the new administration, how much of that rollout will change in terms of prioritizing persons of color in terms of getting vaccinated. But I think on a broader level, through using social media, we can try to reach more people on an individual level. As a physician, we can even have this conversation with our own patients. I mean, it's something that I definitely do. My population is majority Black or Latinx. So, you know, I have this conversation daily with my patients and hope that they pass that message on to others that they know. So, I mean, it's definitely something that we can help change. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about 
about healthcare disparities. That's a whole big, broad conversation, obviously, but with the work and advocacy you do, I really wanted to talk to you about it is how are some ways that you think that we in the medical field can work to end those healthcare disparities? So I think that every hospital and every practice should have true diversity and inclusion training. So I think that a lot of places think they do, but no one actually does. And I think that having that really opens a lot of minds and a little opens a lot of eyes to the biases that we have. And I also think that we need to be checking our own biases all the time. We all have biases that we don't want to admit to, and certainly that we don't want to admit to on social media, but like checking ourselves and admitting to some of those on social media might inspire other people to do the same. And furthermore, I really think that, you know, we need to support more, you know, black and brown and people of color being enrolled in medical school and pre-med programs that support them. You know, we have a minorities in medicine mentorship program. It's for pre-meds. And we've kind of paired some of these kids who are from underrepresented communities with mentors to help them work on their medical school application and just kind of be a buddy and talk to them and help them get through. I think programs, you know, on a college level like that would really make a big difference. But on an individual level as healthcare providers, you know, if you can be a mentor to someone who maybe doesn't know any doctors in their community, as opposed to being a mentor to someone who, you know, their parents are doctors and their parents have many doctor friends, you know, I think that that also will make a big difference. I think that's really important. And I absolutely agree with everything that you've said. I think that we need to also diversify our leadership, you know, medical leadership. Oftentimes you hear from uh, medical leadership saying, you know, we support diversity and and inclusivity, but then you see, you know, their board is all white people. And so you're like, that's great that you're supportive, but you need to show that you actually are doing what you believe in. So I think that, yes, we need to increase numbers of people of color in the medical field, but we also need to make sure that our leadership is representative in that regard. I think we have to make space for that leadership though. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's hard to do. Like even for people like us, like we're not in a marginalized community. We are people of color, but you know, our community is pretty well represented in medicine in general, right? Um, Overrepresented, one would say. (laughs) So I think part of that is like, I think that kind of goes down back to the training, like we really need that in every single hospital and every single program, because having trainings like that will allow us to create space for that kind of leadership to arise, because there's a lot of us that might be hearing this podcast and saying, you know, well, that's not fair. How come she should get that position just because she's black, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you there. Any last words or comments for our listeners? I mean, I just wanted to say how inspired I am by you and all of the work that you do and and this podcast. I think that it's fantastic and a really great opportunity to reach medical students. And you've done an awesome job with it. You're too kind. Thank you so much. I really want to say I thank you for all the work that you've been doing, not in just in your career and in all the volunteer work that you do, but on social media as well, which is, of course, also voluntary. So I really appreciate you. Do you want to maybe share your Instagram handle here so that our listeners can follow you? Yeah, it's um, AJ Victory MD. And I literally picked that when I was in medical school. And now I don't feel like changing it. And I have a long name. (laughs) 
Well, no, it's a great, it's a great Instagram handle. Everyone, you should definitely follow AJ Victory MD. Definitely check her out. She has a great Instagram handle and she's super inspiring. Thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Well, everyone, there you have it. I hope you all enjoyed this fun episode. I was so excited to have Dr. Jambakar on. She truly inspires me every day. I just love, love, love following her. So definitely check out her account at AJ Victory MD. Be sure to follow her. Like I said, she's such a great advocate. So we just had so much to talk about. So I know we kept going for a while, <laughs> but I hope you all enjoyed it. Anyways, if you guys have other topics that you want me to cover, please be sure to reach out to me at Dr.AviVarma. Please be sure to also follow us at Brown Girl White Coat Pod on Instagram. And if you have not already subscribed to our podcast, be sure to do so on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And if you enjoyed the episode, I'd love for you guys to drop a review. We love reading what you guys have to say. It really, really makes our day. And thank you so much for making this podcast a part of your day wherever you are.